welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, you're in for a real treat. I'm here in this studio, joined via Skype with Michael Hengartner. Dr. Hengartner is a researcher specializing in the SSRI literature. You won't want to miss this discussion. And I'll be back next week with a monologue. But this week, I got busy with a secret project that I'm going to tell you about on a future episode. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. I'm back in plenary session HQ with Dr. Michael Hengartner. Dr. Hengartner is senior lecturer and researcher in evidence-based medicine with a focus really on psychiatry, and he's based out of Zurich, Switzerland. Right. Dr. Hengartner, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Vinay. Thank you very much. I've been a big fan of yours from Twitter, um, and I see you have a deep interest in psychiatric medications, particularly the SSRI class of psychiatric medications as well as evidence-based medicine. Is that a fair sort of summary of your, of your research interests? Well, part of it. Um, most recently, it's actually one of my main research topics, but um, I also have different interests in psychiatric research, but now this thing is just blew up, and um, yeah, so I spend most of my time now with uh, antidepressant research, actually, yeah. I see, and you're based at the University of Zurich? Well, it's, it's the uh, Zurich University of Applied Sciences, mm -hmm. it's, but I'm also affiliated with the University of Zurich. I have a double affiliation, but my main uh, affiliation is with the Zurich University of Applied Sciences. I see. So let's jump right in. You know, SSRIs are the subject of at least a thousand randomized controlled trials. And also, despite that uh, abundance of evidence, there are, you know, sort of uh, persistent debates and questions that continue to arise in the medical literature. Um, when you think about SSRIs as a class of medications to treat major depressive episode, how do you think about the evidence base? What do you think about the effect size? What do you think about the, 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 the sort of general evidence base? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I have to say, if you look at the scientific literature, you would say, they certainly work, you know, they are almost, almost every published trial is positive, um, although the effect sizes are um, sometimes rather modest, but um, then there was this particular work by Turner and colleagues in 2008, and, uh, and Kirsch did some research as well, and they looked at, uh, at the FDA data, and then um, 
then it became clear that actually just half of the trials are positive and these are the ones that are published. So if we consider all those negative trials, then the average effect size is really modest and um, it's just two points on the most popular um, rating scale, which is the Hamilton depression rating scale. And th that's not much. So yeah, we say that clingy. Yeah, sorry. No, no, I was just gonna say, my understanding of the Hamilton depression scale is that according to the National Institutes of Clinical Excellence, the UK NICE, they consider a difference of three points to be the minimally clinically meaningful difference. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's, that's right. But it was actually, this was just, there's not much sound evidence for this three point difference. I see. Now we have studies that say for a clinician to perceive an effect as a minimal clinically important change, it would be about six points. So there is research that suggests that um, up to three points clinicians think that it's no change. So three is really just a very conservative, low bound um, measure for, for clinical um, significance, yeah. I see. And, um... And, and you're saying the average across all SSRI trials is probably, when you consider published and unpublished studies, which is what the beauty of the Eric Turner analysis is, um, is that it's about two points. Yeah, right. I it's see. It's about two points. And, and some people argue, and this is something you have studied, uh, that there are subgroups of patients who benefit disproportionately um, from these medications, uh, that everyone is not getting the average effect. Uh, but some of your research uh, has taken a direct look at that hypothesis. Yeah, right. So this is the problem because this is observed response. And of course, in, in, in the classic um, two-arm randomized trial, you, you, can, you, you just know the average treatment effect um, compared to placebo, for instance, uh, but you don't know for individual participant uh, how much of his improvement is actually due to a drug or, or because you, you would need repeated episodes, um, crossover trials, and these don't exist. So actually to know whether there are people who really have a better response uh, due to the pharmacologic effect. So we can't know this do, um, based on these trials. So what we did is um, there's another approach by looking at variances in, um, in the antidepressant arms and the active treatment arms in the placebo arms. And then the logic behind it is that if there truly are, is treatment heterogeneity, you mm -hmm. can see larger variances in the, in the active treatment arm mm. and are not. So um, based on these assumptions, you would say that actually the average treatment effect is like, it's the best guess what you can have. So it does not appear based on these calculations. It does not seem that there are people who have a much bigger gain from the drugs than others. Oh, that's very clever. So what you're saying is that, um, you know, we, we don't have the ideal studies that would try to isolate if subgroups of people have a disproportionate benefit. But the next best thing we do have is if you look at the uh, outcomes and the variance of outcomes in groups on active treatment, and you look at the variance in placebo, you would hypothesize that if there were a subgroup benefiting disproportionately, variance would be greater in active treatment arms. Yeah. And that is not the case. Yeah. There is no greater variance. Ergo, it is unlikely to be the case subgroups are benefiting more. Yes, exactly. That's what we concluded. And um, 
we, what makes us confident that this is possibly the right conclusion is because let's say for 20 or 30 years there have been billions have been invested exactly in, in, in the search of such subgroups, you know, searching for biomarkers and whatever, and, and, and the, the outcome is close to nil. So we, we don't know, we can't define specific subgroups a priori before the trial starts based on some markers. So they're obviously, we don't have evidence that this group exists and in, with our analysis now, it seems even more unlikely that we will ever detect such subgroups. Mm-hmm. Now, you've and I think these are both very important points. So your one point, the first point, I think, is the effect size when you consider unpublished studies is modest. The second point is that it's very difficult, impossible, impossible even, to identify a priori subgroups that may do better. Thus, you are you are left at, at best with the modest effect size. Uh, my question has to do with the, the time. Uh, many of these SSRI studies have a median duration of six weeks or eight weeks. What is the effect of an SSRI if you take it for one year or two years or 10 years, as many patients do? Uh, are they still getting a two Hamilton depression score difference or, or do we just not know? Well, yeah, I would say we just don't know because they are, they are just the, the classic parallel trials. The longest we have is for six to eight months and not longer. Um, the only trials that last longer are discontinuation trials, but that's completely different frame because there you, you, you stabilize people on drugs and then you suddenly put half of them on placebo and the rest is maintained on drugs. So they, they have a lot of confounding there due to withdrawal reaction and all that stuff. But the classic long-term trials, there are so few and these don't even find that so if you look at remission rates you don't see differences between placebo and active treatment arms in these rather long-term parallel trials i see and by remission you consider hamilton depression score less than seven yeah it depends you know some trials i think that's also kind of um you know outcome switching whatever because mm-hmm. sometimes it's Sometimes it's seven, sometimes it's five. So, um, but usually it's around five, six, seven points. Yeah, less than. I see. One question for you is, do you believe these randomized clinical trials of antidepressants, are they blinded? By that I mean they are placebo-controlled and the patients are not told if they're taking active treatment or placebo, yet many patients who take fluoxetine, peroxetine, um, they may get a metallic taste in the mouth. They may feel slightly different. Um, uh, That may actually be sort of work to unblind the study to some degree. And, and I've heard some people argue that the control arm should be sort of an active placebo. You should put a little ingredient in there that gives you dry mouth or something like that so that you really can't tell. Uh, have you thought about this, uh, the, the degree of blinding? Does that play a role in these studies? Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, there are a few studies who looked at these issues and um, it seems that uh, there's uh, unblinding is a big issue because um, especially the outcome raters, they can um, identify quite precisely who or the guess rather precisely who is on active drug and who is on placebo um, because there are many signs uh, that someone is taking an active drug because just because the average treatment effect is 
just a little bit uh, better than placebo does not mean that these are placebos. So these are psychotropic drugs and then they certainly cause various things, um, sedation or also um, physical symptoms. And um, so it's for, for most clinicians, it's rather obvious whether someone receives a placebo or an active treatment. And also many patients recognize the effects because the most feel something, so they know that this is an active drug. And there are a few trials who use the active placebos that um, does um, active placebos that cause nausea or the kind of stuff. And uh, in these trials, usually you don't find um, a separation between placebo and drugs. So uh, almost zero treatment effects in these trials. I see. So it seems may have some impact, yeah. I think that's very important to know because obviously if you're enrolling somebody on a study and you're te- and these are people coming to you because they, they feel bad, they feel depressed, and, and you're telling them, you know, there's a chance you're going to be assigned to a placebo, but there's a chance you're going to get this medicine that we really believe is going to make you feel better. And then you take the pill and you feel that metallic taste in your mouth and you get this feeling like, well, I'm pretty sure I'm not getting the placebo. Um, it's hard to separate your desire to want to be better from the medicine making you better. And unless you, of course, is truly blinded. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that, this is an issue. But there's even another issue because most participants who enter these trials, they have already been on antidepressants. So they are withdrawn rather rapidly or abruptly uh, from their treatments um, in, in the leading washout phase. So actually what happens then that some patients certainly already experience some withdrawal symptoms. And then when they are randomized to, to receive the active drug or the active treatment, then these um, withdrawal reactions, they immediately um, are immediately eliminated. So that may also make some kind of an artificial effect that is actually due to the drug, but be because the withdrawal reaction is um, immediately you know, countered by, by the active treatment. So. I see. So in sort of in an ideal experiment, you would take people who are having the first major depressive episode, the first time they're depressed, never have taken these medicines, randomize them to active treatment versus active placebo. So they really get those sort of side effects. They don't know if they're getting the treatment. And then look to see eight weeks, 12 weeks, 16 weeks, 52 weeks. What's the difference in Hamilton? That would be the ideal study. Yeah, that would be the ideal setting. But I would even say in the ideal treatment would not use the Hamilton depression scale because the Hamilton scale has a rather poor validity. It's not a, a unidimensional measure. And, um, what critics legitimately argue is that um, because it also covers items um, for sleep, you know, appetite and all that stuff. And what argue is that actually these are also side effects of the drugs so there could it could really be that um the, i see the, the drug is giving you appetite bigger. yeah right yeah right but because the, the, the hamilton scale also assesses side effects that would result in an underestimation so there are actually better scales for instance the montgomery aspect depression rating scale which assesses only core depression symptoms 
And um, this one is at much better scale, actually. I see. Many years ago, I read a paper by John Ioannidis um, called um, uh, Antidepressants, like a thousand clinical trials, uh, uh, but still uncertainty. He argued that some of the endpoints they should look at is whether or not you keep and retain your job, whether or not you're satisfied in your marriage and with your children, um, whether or not uh, you have engaged in suicidal attempts or suicidality, the so-called the hardest endpoints of life and living. And he argued that um, the current ratio was one person on trial for every 50,000 people in the world taking these drugs. Uh, so it is not unreasonable to design and power trials for these really meaningful endpoints. What do you think about that argument? Yeah, I think that's a really important thing. Yeah, I also suggested uh, in, the, in the paper that we should move away from simply rating symptoms because in the end what counts is if people get their life back. Are they able to work? Are they able to maintain a marriage or whatever? Or even hard outcomes like suicide attempts or suicides. So um, these would be hard outcomes that would could actually, actually end this whole debate. debate whether they or not by looking at such hard outcomes. Yeah. Let me ask you, in some of your publications, you have done pooled meta-analytic estimates of suicide rates on randomized trials of antidepressants, uh, and those have been met with some pushback, and there's a vigorous debate there. Uh, what do you find, what is the debate, and uh, what thoughts do you have on this issue? Yeah, that's a very delicate topic. Yeah, what, what we did, we looked at the FDA database, and um, the first analysis was actually just a crude one, because that there was um, a very famous group of researchers, um, Khan and colleagues, who published several papers based on these FDA data and, um, and with crude analysis, no meta-analytic methods. And, and, and they always reported that uh, there's no significantly increased uh, rate of suicides um, in the, the active treatments arms compared to placebo. Um, when we reassess those data and instead of person exposure years, we just uh, looked at the number randomized uh, to treatment norms, which in our opinion is, is the better approach because suicides usually or suicide attempts occur early in the course of treatment and then if you, person years could actually result in an underestimation. So we looked at these data and calculated the risk ratio and uh, what we found is that the, the suicide rate and the, the rate of suicide attempts was considerably higher for active arm compared to placebo. So the pushback was then because um, these the database includes not only placebo controlled trials, they also have active only controlled trials, head-to-head -head trials as well. So. Um, then the question was, yeah, okay, if these participants in head-to-head -head trials have a higher baseline suicide risk, then we had a massive bias in our data. But the FDA actually, Laugrain published a paper in 2001 and, um, where he reported suicide rates for only short-term placebo-controlled trials. And he found almost exactly the same rates that we found when looking at the entire database with all phase two and three trials. So it really appears that something is there and it's, it, it's a signal, of course, but it's alarming and we need more research really to settle these questions. And just 
if I recall correctly, the absolute risks you found were on placebo-controlled arms, it was very low. It was like uh, uh, less than 1%, two one-hundredths of 1% or something, but it went up to like 13 one-hundredths of 1%. Or what were the sort of absolute numbers you found? Um, the absolute numbers? Oh, um, I have, uh, I would need to, I need to check them, but uh, the rate was... Um, 0.02% yeah. in placebo arms. And then in, in the active treatment arms, or let's say in the SSRI arms, you have about 0.1%. Yeah. So it's really higher. But um, of course, the, the, the absolute number of suicides is, is, is rather low, um, especially for, for placebo arms. There are almost no suicides in placebo arms. And just a handful, really, a few. I would need to check the numbers, but I think it's it's not even ten. Yeah, in all those. Trials. I see. I think I think you're pretty close to what they are. I think you are accurate. Well, I, I just I, I want to check the numbers. Okay, because, um, check. I just opened the file. Yeah, what we have in total, what according to the FDA database for all phase two and three trials. Um, new generation antidepressants. So that means uh, everything that started with fluoxetine and afterwards. So we have in total 41 suicides in active treatment arms and we loaded uh, two suicides in the placebo arms. I see. But there are fewer participants in placebo arms, of course, because uh, most trials you have several fixed doses. So, of course, the total number of participants in the active treatment arms are much larger than in the placebo arms. Why don't you take us through some of the data on withdrawal? So if you discontinue these medications, what do you experience? Um, are they meant to be discontinued suddenly or should they be tapered? Or uh, what have you learned about withdrawal from your studies? Yeah, they should definitely taper slowly. And what most recent research points at is that we need much slower taper than what was long actually usually it was the common clinical wisdom was you know you can taper them in four weeks um, and then it appears that for especially for long-term users who have been on the drugs for years and um, there are quite a substantial portion of people that um, experience really severe withdrawal symptoms and some of these they need very 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 slow tapers that last for months or even years and in the end because the smallest uh, doses that are available are much too high so they they really they need to cut the pills or they need liquids or that they they open the capsules and and, and then really start to count um, how you say the what is in the capsules the, the 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 powder the particulates yeah of the medicine yeah, so, so they the grains need, of it, the grains, maybe. Yeah, yeah so some really need very, very, very slow tapers. I see. Um, and if you don't taper uh, versus taper, the risk of rebound depression is greater in groups that are discontinued abruptly? Yeah, a rebound is just one aspect. You also have, um, there's a whole spectrum of withdrawal symptoms. Um, one phenomenon that is the, it, uh, yeah, it's rebound symptoms or like the original 
the, the disorder that, that comes back, but much more severe and more intense than before. But usually there are also many more problems like, you know, like brain zaps that are often mentioned, um, dizziness, noisy, uh, extreme insomnia, nightmares, and then um, gait instability and all that kind of stuff that um, are very burdensome actually for patients. So these symptoms can in by by their very nature because they are so distressing then of course they, they cause a lot of distress and then the, which can of course then prompt a, a new depression episode because they go through some say that these are really so burdensome that they are barely tolerable so, such symptoms. Having done all this work on the SSRI class of medications, what is your overall conclusion of this class? Uh, you know, are you, do you believe it has a role to play clinically? Are you, have you become even more skeptical than that? What is your sort of take home message about these medicines? Well, they certainly have their role. Um, it's no, of course, I would never say that we should stop prescribing them. I think the biggest problem with the SSRI class is the massive expansion in let's say mild and minor depression and not not what was once considered really clinical depression so very um sometimes it's very sub-threshold problems um, which are actually in my view are part of human life not, not everyone is happy all the time and we experience some symptom, anxiety symptoms and sometimes we have low mood and uh, whatever and um the problem is that, in my view, the drugs have been massively overprescribed for such forms or problems, and 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 that's actually, I think, it's the biggest problem because I don't think that they work in these forms of depression, really mild and minor depression, um, and, and and that's the. But these are actually the most common forms of depression. So that's actually, from a public health perspective, that's that's actually the problem. Um, for people with severe depression, of course, I think they have their place. Um, it's We need all kinds of treatments to treat depression, um, but not sub-threshold depression, I think. that That's the big problem there. When the class of medicines was developed, why were the initial studies placebo-controlled? Why were they not tested against prior classes of medications like tricyclic antidepressants, MAOI? Uh, what was the justification for withholding uh, uh, you know, prior standard of care therapy uh, with the new class of medicine, letting it be placebo-controlled? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, in psychiatry, the efficacy must be established in comparison to placebo and uh, yeah and then there's a le legitimate question why not test them against the tricyclics for instance and um, most trials they have uh, an active control arm and um, what these earlier trials if you pool the data from the fluoxetine trials um, I think on average fluoxetine was um, worse than the tricyclics, uh, which was at that time was mostly mepramine, I think. And um, so actually, on that's actually where a lot of people say that, uh, in, especially in more severe forms of depression, that the, the old drugs would work better than the SSRI, in mm -hmm. fact. I've especially in melancholic depression, 
where it really appears that the SSRI are not that good as the tricyclics. I've heard that too from a lot of seasoned uh, psychiatrists who've practiced for many years and who also practiced in uh, people who've had the chance to practice in the era prior to SSRIs. Many people who have practiced in this era um, don't have the same clinical experience as prior eras. So I've heard different stories over the years. Um, One question I had for you is, you mentioned that like many things in medicine, there's indication drift. Uh, we're prescribing these medicines to people for whom uh, disease is less severe, meaning that the difference that the drug is adding may be trivial or not at all, no difference at all. Yes, exactly. We have a few trials actually that uh, tested the SSRIs in mild and minor depression and usually average over all those studies, you don't see a difference to placebo. So um, that's why, for instance, that here in Switzerland and Germany and treatment guidelines, they advise against um, antidepressant use in mild forms of depression because they say that actually they, there's no evidence that they work in mild depression. I know that in the, in the States, it's a little bit different. The APA is actually one of the few worldwide to also recommend uh, antidepressants for mild depression but most treatment guidelines in other countries they advise actually against uh, uh, antidepressant use for um, mild forms of depression and my question is you know i'm a cancer doctor i take care of cancer patients and often i encounter people who um are sad about what is to come because they are in fact maybe even dying of cancer um and that's sort of a natural response, fear, anxiety, being scared. Uh, it's a natural response to knowing you may die in the short term. And I also see um, there's enthusiasm and growing enthusiasm uh, to use uh, psychiatric medications in this setting. Um, similarly for the loss of a loved one or something like that. What do you think about the role of these medications when it is when when the person has a reason for how they're feeling a very legitimate reason they're either dying or they've lost a loved one yeah good question good question i think it's difficult to say i would say if of course it's very reasons normal reaction actually to to be scared and then and then kind of depressed of course if you have such a diagnosis and um, often a poor prognosis but in the end i i would say if if these symptoms of depression and anxiety are so severe that they would negatively impact on, on the main problem like let's say in your example cancer i think there is a place then to add such drugs if they of course do not interfere with, with the, the, sure. the cancer treatment and um, if it can be shown that they work in these conditions that's a big if because uh, usually in other medical conditions where a lot of antidepressants are used so for instance also in dementia patients yes um they, they did a lot of actually i would say most dementia patients receive antidepressants yes. and there's no clear evidence actually that they work in dementia patients. So then I think it's it's rather questionable to, to prescribe these drugs in these conditions. Yes, and to your knowledge, there is no antidepressant trial in sort of terminally ill patients, for instance? I'm not aware of actually, I have to say. Yeah, me neither. Um, my next question is, 
and maybe my last question, because I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, your thoughts on screening for depression. Uh, in the United States, we have a USPSTF, our, you know, our body that makes recommendations. They have advised that primary care doctors uh, screen every person who comes into their office for depressive symptoms. Um, such a strategy is uh, certainly has potential to be of benefit, uh, but it also has potential downsides. Um, and it has never been directly studied in a randomized trial. What do you think about screening for depression? Yeah. I think it's it's a very dangerous thing um, because if you screen an entire population, it will probably result in much overdiagnosis and overtreatment. And um, there are some studies that I think even randomized trial. I think there are some uh, a few that looked at this, and but they don't find that the screening has actually an impact because the people that really would require drugs like more severe present clinically screening yeah. to detect them because every single gp will immediately see recognize okay these people this person is depressed but if you start to screen and the screening instruments are very poor instruments because basically they they they, they assess items that are just did you sleep not that good? Are you sometimes uh, sad, low mood? So everyone experiences such things. So it's actually almost impossible to not have a few points on such a screening questionnaire. And then, and, and that's actually a big problem because that's actually what happens then. People with minor or really sub-threshold depressive symptoms, they are, um, let's say, diagnosed and then treated with drugs that actually don't really work for these conditions and that would not even really require these drugs because such very mild forms of depression, they are usually transient. So they, they um, spontaneously remit uh, in most cases. And um, so I think, I don't think that it's a good thing to, to screen all people for depression. And I, I lied, I have one more question, esketamine. Oh, where to start? Yeah, um, that steered a lot of controversy because the FDA approved esketamine. Um, there was just one positive trial. So, and, um, but although we need to, at least we need to um, stress that uh, the treatment effect was about the same in the negative trials. It was just not sufficiently powered that that it results in a statistically significant result. But anyway, the, the, the treatment effect was very modest, actually. And it was a very small effect um, that would also fall below, actually, what we would consider a clinically important difference. So um, and in view of that, it's yeah, because of the, there were also very short term trials. And there is a drug we know that has high addiction potential and, um, and there, were, there were, I think there were six deaths in the esketamine arms and zero in the placebo arm and three of these deaths were suicides. Well, of course, that's not statistically significant, but it's quite, it's a signal again. And I think it's alarming if six people die on esketamine and no one dies on placebo. And these are just like say four or six week trials. and. What happens then? 
you know, these people are on a drug that has the potential, yeah, they can become addicted to this drug. And, and the, the drug is, it's, it has some, there are serious concerns because this drug is known, for instance, that it can cause psychotic symptoms and then dissociation. And then it has quite an alarming uh, adverse event profile. So I, in my opinion, the bar was much too low for approving this drug, given that this is not just compared to the SSRIs, which are really much safer um, than than esketamine. I think it was perhaps a bad take to approve it without having long-term data. I agree with you with that. Um, and I have one more question to ask you. What were your thoughts on the Cipriani paper that appeared in The Lancet that many took to be the largest meta-analysis of SSRIs and many hailed as uh, the final proof uh, that these medications are truly efficacious. You know, suddenly everyone hailed this study as now it has proved that the drugs work, but actually the finding is nothing new. It was the same effect size that, that we know actually for years. That what makes this study very special is that it's based on the largest database, trial database ever, and then the, they, the authors really deserve credit for digging out all those trials, the over 500 trials, so that was a massive effort. But the result in the end is just about the same. We have a more or less a modest or even tiny effect. And uh, of course, with this high, very massive, high amount of statistical power, it was statistically significant for every individual drug. But uh, yeah, it's not. And then actually, what, what concerned me is that because it was statistically significant, everybody claimed, "Oh, okay, they work." So every and that's actually a big problem. You're certainly aware of it. Uh, most people confuse statistical significance with practical relevance and the, the issues were still there. Okay, these are just eight weeks trials. We have a very modest effect and, um, and with all those biases that we know that we have, like, like placebo washout and all that stuff and unblinding and, and so on. So in the end, what, what does it mean now, this, this rather small effect size. Does it mean they work? So most people said yes, they work because it was statistically significant, but uh, swiftly many researchers pointed out, no, well, there was also a very uh, important reanalysis by the Nordic Cochrane Center, who again showed that these are just two small points on, on, on the rating scale. And they concluded, contrary to, to, to Cipriani, they concluded that we can't say uh, with certainty that they are better than placebo. And yeah, in the end, it's these two points. So everyone must decide whether this is a proof that they work or whether we should be rather cautious and say, well, I'm not so sure. Thank you. Uh, thanks for doing this. This is very interesting. Yeah, i really a big fan of your work. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, I should have asked you this at the beginning, but let me ask you it at the end. Um, could you tell me a little bit about you know your education and your background? How did you come to do this kind of work? Um, I know you're a PhD evidence-based medicine expert. What, what is your training in and how did you fall into this work? How long have you been doing it? Yeah, well, actually I studied, what I studied was um, clinical psychology and uh, psychopathology. 
And um, I also did my PhD in psychopathology, which is actually, you know, it's a, it's a domain in between medicine and psychology. And um, but I was I did my PhD at the, at the psychiatric university hospital, so I always I always was in psychiatric research. That's why I don't even consider myself a psychologist. Uh, that's why I, I do I, I do medical research in in, in, in psychiatry. And um, and then after my PhD, well, that's something you probably don't know. In the States, we call it habilitation. The doctor is not our highest academic degree. We have uh, a degree higher than uh, the doctor, and this is the habilitation. It's kind of qualification for professorship. And this one I did in medicine. And um, yeah, I always was interested. Though. So when I started my PhD, that was this big replication crisis in psychology, you know, where suddenly became clear that most psychological experiments, they don't replicate, that many famous experiments did not replicate, and then was really concerned that, that, that there mm. must be a very high number of false positives. So mm. I was always very interested in these topics, and then I started to research, okay, um, so how about uh, publication bias and right. selective reporting in psychiatry, and when you start mm -hmm. searching for the thing actually one of the first thing that pops up is antidepressant research right. like the Turner study and all those studies and that's when i really became interested in these things and uh, dig deeper and deeper and uh, looking at uh, all those biases in evidence-based medicine um, so that's why i ended here actually yeah and are, are you from switzerland i'm from switzerland yeah i see yeah. did all your training there yeah yeah, yeah. I, I, our, everything happened in Zurich, actually. I started in Zurich, and um, yeah, <laughs> I never left the city, actually. <laughs> well, Michael Hengartner, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and taking us through um, this very provocative work and uh, uh, on evidence-based medicine in the psychiatric medication literature. Uh, we'd love to have you back on a future episode when there's some new paper that comes out. We can talk about it. Thank you very much, Vinay. Thank you for the invitation. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening. <laughs>